Um, okay, today's seminar is from uh, Marissa Wilson, um, who is a Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Edinburgh. Um, she did DPhil in Anthropology um, in this department um, on moral economies of food in Cuba. And she then went on to her first academic post at the uh, University of West Indies in Trinidad, um, now in Edinburgh, um, but continues to work on political ecologies of food and diet. So she knows about Cuba, she knows about Trinidad, and that's what we're going to find out about today. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm delighted to be here today. Uh, it seems perhaps that the cold up north works better for me because just when I got here again, I've got this terrible cold that's just come on but a couple of days ago, so I think that the disease is not spreadable anymore. So today I'm going to talk about uh, political economies, political ecologies, um, and also um, systems of food provisioning, linking the two up, and I'll make it clear what I mean by those terms. But to begin with, I'd like to start with uh, a question that's more philosophical when it comes to who's responsible for health, uh, food and health more generally. And this is a key question when you're talking about political economies and ecologies. Um, so it's really a question about agency. Is it the state or the individual? And there's been lots of critiques of an individualistic approach to health and nutrition, and this talk will be in line with those critiques. So we have this dominant view. Uh, most societies now are market liberal societies. Um, that really we need to, the state needs to stand back and let the individual do exactly what he or she wants to do. <clears throat> When this comes to health, um, there's really a long-term trajectory of this idea, especially in this country. Uh, Edwin Chadwick, for example, who was probably the first person to uh, be a, a powerful player in uh, public health in Britain, was really for looking at the state-led uh, sanitation measures in London. And he was, he had forced to resign actually in the 1850s, 1860s, but then later knighted. So things perhaps changed a little bit. Um, so you have uh, a political economic view, which is really this economic structure of how we think about health. It's, it's attached to this long term trajectory of how we think about economy, which originally was, was linked to politics. Um, political philosophy and moral philosophy, but then became separate from that, and so the economic realm was treated as something that's, that was on its own, separate from these other forces. So that is really, in a way, a kind of culture, uh, a cultural economy. So if we link this idea of this individualistic political economy to ideas about health, we can see that there are links, there are cultural links and uh, how we deal with things like public health nutrition. And James Trossel has written about this in terms of the epidemiology of ideas. So really we're talking about the economy as a separate realm, health and politics, morality, everything else are externalities. 
And the environment is an externality, of course. And this is an individualistic model. And this goes along as well with looking at the food system, the industrialized food system that we have today, which is really leave it up to the individual to decide. And it's based on this uh, maximization of the individual's happiness, not really paying attention to the effects of consumption, but just consumption itself. And, and that's measured in price. So the lower the prices, the better off we are. And eventually, the global economy will all measure out, where the big Mac index indicates this. How many of you have heard of the Big Mac Index? Right. So it's, apparently it's all going to measure out, and it's all going to be balanced, and we're going to all be able to consume our Big Macs at similar prices according to national economies. So political ecology looks at these political economic models, which I've called cultures as well. There's a cultural trajectory of this dominant political economic model that we have. So it looks at the political economic models, but takes into account those externalities, like bodies and the environment. So today I'm talking about comparative political eco ecologies of food and diet. Okay. So if we think of political ecology as a mode of inquiry, meaning that we're combining the approach to political economy, which I've just done sort of a genealogy of thought and how we think about the economy now is linked to that thought and also linked to how we think about health or the dominant ways of, of viewing health. So political ecology is a mode of inquiry, sort of epistemological mode. And systems of provisioning could be seen as an object of inquiry. So if you, you're looking at particular links or this are dealings between production and consumption and, whether, and how they are linked. Um, this is my favorite definition so far. And the thing to center in on here is that these systems of production really lock in consumers to particular ways of consuming things. Um, so there is a definite link between how food is produced, how it is exchanged, and then how people are consuming on the ground. So it is worthwhile looking at two different countries that have different political economic trajectories and also political ecological trajectories and how that influences different systems of provisioning and therefore different diets and ways of eating. So today I'm talking about Trinidad and Cuba in, the, in that sense and how consumers have become locked in to particular trajectories of food. And so the rest of the talk, and you can see I have the numbers so you don't get too bored. Right, so there's only 19, so hopefully I won't run out of time. Going to talk about that genealogy, looking at a historical approach really to how systems of provisioning have emerged in Trinidad and then in Cuba as an outlier is very different, although it started very similar to Trinidad as a post-colonial society. And then we'll quickly look at, I'll quickly provide a critical analysis of 
the, the food and health policies in each country. So the West Indies is the first place where you had this plantation economy model, uh, which was based on basically uh, resource monopoly, uh, taking over a lot of lands, most of the lands in fact, for export, uh, mass production of exports like sugar, as in Trinidad. And Sir Arthur Lewis, later on in the 20th century, uh, epitomized this along with other people as separating a modern sector for production from a traditional sector. And this modernist way of looking at things, which is still very much with us, um, valued really that modern sector for export rather than the more subsistence level agriculture. And then in terms of culture, plantations did become what uh, George Beckford called the total economic institutions and in that it really influenced how people thought about food on the ground. People in the West Indies, for example, and other colonies were taken from their original lands and so that the connections that they had with each other, the, the links were really all directed towards the outside. It was economic links really more than cultural links and so indeed economics the dominant economic model became itself cultural so this is George Beckford again who writes about the the ways that people connected to each other really through this individualistic way of thinking about economy and this competition for consumption really was built into the way that these societies formed. And so consuming stuff like imports was valued much more than consuming traditional things like Bodhi. Only one person in this room knows what Bodhi is. Sorry, I knew I'd pick on you. My Rhodes Scholar student, something like that. Um, so now you can see this trajectory of people valuing imports People continue, I've done ethnographic fieldwork in Trinidad, people do continue to value imports over local food production. It's changing, um, but Kentucky Fried Chicken is a, is a very valued commodity in, in Trinidad. So after independence, there, is, there were continuities with this cultural economy and with the political ecological links to the outside and to the way of production. Uh, producing for export. And the values remained very similar. So you had an attachment to this modern sector that was very much monetized rather than subsistence or traditional agriculture. Though after independence there were attempts to diversify agriculture, there have been various attempts and there have been attempts recently which I'll talk about. Um, they haven't been very successful probably because these consumer systems and the producer systems which are linked to them have been locked in to kind of historical systems of production and consumption which come from uh, colonialism and were continued through uh, post-imperial, if you will, or neo-imperial relationships with multinational corporations. For example, Tate and Lyle who had resource monopolies in places like Trinidad. And if we go a bit later into the century, you have the cultural values there as well. Eric Williams had this slogan, money is no problem. We'll have lots of money, you can buy your commodities, 
food became a social wage, really. So it was completely proletarianized population, not really, not completely, but a majority weren't really producing on the land. They were relying on imports. And these processes continued up to the present with US food subsidies, subsidies for wheat and corn and basic commodities which go into industrial food products. And of course, structural adjustment policies in the 1980s and 90s meant that though these protections continue in the US, people, the people in Trinidad cannot be protected. Farmers lost their protections from the state. So they had to compete on these global market networks. And indeed, most of them could not compete. And then you had in the 1990s GATT, um, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and WTO, uh, trade-related investment measures meant, again, that if you're signing into uh, loans from the IMF, you cannot protect your local businesses and your local farmers. So alongside these patterns, you have the fast food revolutions and supermarket revolutions, and I have a number here that really, this has increased very recently to up to 50% of the market in food comes from supermarkets now. And supermarkets prioritize processed foods, usually imported foods, because they make, you can make much more money. So it's based on the same political economic model that I just discussed before. This alongside with Trinidad and Tobago, the government has been quite neoliberal in its um, policies promoting a free trade areas, um, the CARICOM, CARICOM region, and also really the, Trinidad and Tobago wanted to be the center of the free trade areas of the Americas, which is still under negotiation, it's, it's still being discussed, which is similar to NAFTA. So opening up markets, um, individuals consuming, and they will all benefit, you know, based on the same sort of model. Now, recently you have this value-added model that comes from the World Bank. And on paper, it looks like it's more of a food sovereign model, where it's trying to promote, um, support small farmers. But really, they're not small farmers. They're farmers that can compete in these international global networks. And alongside this, uh, recently, uh, the president of Trinidad and Tobago eliminated that, the, the tax on many, many products that come from, that come, go into supermarkets, many industrial products. So as Uliasek argues, and uh, basically this model is really dysfunctional in public health terms. Um, and one example is people in Trinidad, this has been written about in, this, in the 80s, valued uh, imports so much that they would buy baby formula and water it down because it was quite expensive. And then you had protein-related diseases in children at that time. But you have lots of values for imports. And of course, the multinational corporations like to localize um, their products so that people enjoy their products. And Maggie is a good example, which is all over the place, but it's Trinidadians think it's Trini, right? I'm not saying anything wrong here. It's good. So this is really interesting because Maggie products 
has a website that's about their Facebook page, and of course Trinidad and Tobago is very much into Facebook, so we, can, we have to take this with a grain of salt. But the global fan base, Trinidad and Tobago, this small community makes up 85.7% of the fans on Facebook for Maggie products. In total? Yes. Across the planet? Across the planet. 130, I think there are 136 countries involved in this. You can look it up if you want. No, it's no, very it. interesting. So, they, but they are very much into Facebook, Trinidad, and Tobago. So let's shift over to Cuba as a contrast. In a way, it's quite. It was quite similar to Trinidad at the, in the beginning, in many ways, really. It's a sugar colony, just like Trinidad and Tobago, and other plantation economies. And after independence, they invited the owners back, as George Beckford said. Some multinational corporations came in, took the role of the former colonizers in taking over land. So again, you had, in the 20th century, large-scale dependencies on food imports and social hierarchies based on imports as well in Cuba, all prior to 1959. And you probably had even more poverty in Cuba prior to 1959, I think definitely then in a place like Trinidad and Tobago. And because of this, you know, there was social unrest as well in the countryside, which led to the revolution. But prior to 1959, uh, you have the same sort of protracted polarized model, which you guys are probably more familiar with than I am, but it's an epidemiological transition model, which is based on you know, non-communicable diseases coexisting with uh, spreadable diseases. And that was happening prior to 1959, just like other developing countries, post-colonial countries. And you also had a coexistence of undernutrition and overnutrition. Now, in 1959, there were, it was a shattering of the structure, basically completely different political economic structure in many respects, but similar in others, as I'll come to. So there is much more of a reliance on internal networks and internal state-related supports for people. So a lot of things that major poverty were, was eliminated at this time, and you had social services for health and education. So there's a shift in meaning as well, at least at the state level, and I think also from the ground up, between food as just a commodity, a simple commodity, and health, environment and all that, well health at least at this point, was not an externality anymore. Environment was, which we'll come to. So there's a different meaning in what food and nourishment is. It's not an abstract value, it's not something that is just, you can put a price on, but something that's deeper. But we still had, until the 1990s, this two-sector model, industrialized food model, where the environment was still considered an external part of all of this. And as Marx said, the peasants are just sacks of potatoes. You know, so you still had really a parallel industrial food system. And continued import dependencies on the USSR after in the 1960s, similar to Trinidad and Tobago after independence, there were moves to domesticate agriculture, to diversify and to try to get localized food production going, but again, wasn't very successful. USSR kind of took over, 
and I think you're quite familiar with the story. But because of this looking glass dynamic you know, of the Cold War, the US and the USSR, meat-based diets were really a big part of that, I'm trying to convince people to consume that they wanted to be a part of this political system because they had good consumption. They had meat and they had other products. And with the 1973 detente, which was when the USSR bought all the grain surplus from the US, basically the USSR could feed Cuba very similarly to the way that the US was feeding the world. And this is seen in levels of obesity, whereas I think in the early 70s, 60s, you wouldn't have these kinds of numbers, but uh, in 1982, after eating for a decade or close to a decade of, of good stuff from the USSR, levels of obesity were very high. Of course, in 1990s, with the, with the special period, a lot of this changed, and uh, the environment became something that was incorporated into the model. It, it was no longer an externality. Um, so no more food and fuel, or very little food and fuel that was coming from the USSR. And there is a shift in ideology from food security, which is based on imports from the USSR, to food sovereignty, really trying to produce for the nation. And so there is a proliferation of urban agriculture. Private farmers were given land. Uh, we can't romanticize this because there's lots of complications. And indeed, there's still a lot of industrialized agriculture in Cuba. But it's, it's a quite significant shift in the model. And the urban agriculture really did feed a lot of people, and people's vegetable and fruit consumption went up drastically, even though Cubans are really like their pork and fried potatoes, I'll say, like fried tubers. But it's very different than um, inviting the colonizers back. I think people started to sense that you know the land was theirs and that they could support their own food system a little bit more than perhaps other places. And with the scarcity in fuels, of course, you had bicycles that from, the, from China that came over to Cuba. Um, levels of physical activity went drastically up from the sedentary population was 70%, and then it went to 33 But of course, it rose after 1999, which I'll come to. And then in 1999, there's no more food storage, so with shortages, so you have a drastic rise in obesity again. And so here are some graphs of this period. And it's very unique, a very unique case. And I think perhaps you've talked about Cuba a little bit. Um, but you can see that from if we have this parallel with Trinidad and Tobago, we probably have it would be more linear, these different schemes, rather than these drastic levels. So dietary intake went drastically down. Um, I've got the smoking prevalence there too, which went down and continued to go down. But this is perhaps more illuminating. Overall, the entire population, population-wide, which is a unique thing, because they were all of different uh, generally homogenous when it comes to health, but basically of different weights. But everyone at all different weight zones went 
down about 5.5 kilos. And then in 2010, they increased, here's the last one, prevalence of, of obesity and diabetes, of course, went drastically down and then went up. And so I come to the critical analysis. So I'll start with Cuba. <clears throat> so we don't really have this dual burden anymore after 1959. Undernutrition was virtually eliminated in Cuba, which, which makes it unique amongst the post-colonial societies. Um, and now, obesity prevalence, I think this is from 2008, is 20.5 versus 30% in Trinidad and Tobago. And Trinidad and Tobago is a much more unequal society. Poverty, poverty levels are at about 20% at this point. And so this goes along with Offer and Uliasek and whose people have written about market liberal societies being, that are more unequal, leading to higher levels of obesity. So we can talk about um, these drastic, these amazing campaigns. Um, I lived in Cuba for about a year and a half, and everything that you see on TV is based on, most of it is based on educational uh, material. So you have lots to do about health, about how people should be eating. However, there is there was a critique from the people I was staying with that really uh, we can't afford this food that they're showing, or maybe it's not food that I've ever seen. You know, it's not in my market. Um, so how successful is it really? And also, you have a culture of high consumption, as I say, of, of fatty pork and, and fatty things. So people really don't want to change the way that they eat. In this survey, 20, only 20% of the population would eat the recommended fruit and veg. Um, since, really, in the past just couple of years, you have uh, smaller fast food vendors that are, have been legalized so they can sell things like really horrible pizza that's dripping with fat. And sometimes I ate it because I wanted to be, you know, show solidarity with other Cubans. But it's not something that's very nice. And there's really no nutritional value whatsoever. Um, but it's, it's valued for, by the population because it's something new, convenience food, they don't have to spend all the, this time in their kitchen. And also, young people, it has been written that in Havana, we're starting to value things like Coca-Cola. You don't have Coca-Cola in Cuba, but you have its equivalent. And people see Coca-Cola on commercials and things like that. So in Havana, now where I lived, in a rural area, I didn't see that happening, but then last time I went was 2011. So the, the values that were present prior to 1959 are still there, and values for imports are still there. Then you have a national system for feeding people, for getting people to eat healthily, but not every, people do not like you know, what the state has on offer. You have these things called what the population calls orietos comestibles no identificados. Identificado. And that's basically these soya, this is soya preparation stuff that's supposed to replace meat and it's supposed to be good for you. But people just make, it says this is not an unidentified edible object. Yeah, and they don't want to eat it. And so how good is this system when they're providing this food that's quite healthy but people really don't want to eat it? So 
you have a continuum really between this entire you know, holistic system that's collective uh, and the individualistic system. Some people would much rather be closer to the individualistic side. And since 1993 in particular, when you, uh, the state introduced a dual currency system, uh, there's been a drastic rise in inequalities in Cuba as well. And really, this coincides with the drastic rise in obesity. So it does conform to this model that the more liberalized the economy is, the more obese people are. And we can also talk about the daily stresses of everyday life. People talk about the lucha, the uh, fight for provisioning, the fight to get things on the table. And it is very difficult to live in Cuba. In fact, when I lived there, I lost quite a bit of weight. It's a good place for me to go and diet. <laughs> but uh, it's a very hard place to get food on the table because people can't afford to get fruits and vegetables which are more expensive at the farmer's markets. So if we look at Trinidad and Tobago, you have much more of a continu uh, continuity between what was happening in the past and what's happening now. Whereas in Cuba, they really broke away in many respects from the structural violence, as Paul Farmer talks about, uh, of foreign people owning land and dependencies on imports, especially after the 1990s. In Trinidad and Tobago, really, there's more, more continuities than um, divergences. And just like many other post-colonial societies, the dual burden remains of under and overnutrition. So again, in, uh, in Trinidad and Tobago, it follows the market liberal model, where food and where health is an externality, and food is just a commodity, really. It's just like any other commodity that can be bought and sold. Recently, there's been a campaign called Fight the Fat, which is mainly a Facebook campaign, um, and I've liked their page. I, I'm not really a Facebook person, but in Trinidad, because I live there and because I'm starting to do ethnographic fieldwork, it's impossible not to be a Facebook person, so I have to um, be involved with it. But they're trying to spread the, the word of exercising, but also eating healthily through the internet. But again, it's very much based on individuals, based on similar to the UK's nudge approach, which you've probably heard of which is not based on taxing fatty foods or taxing Coca-Cola and things like that. It's based on trying to, for example, put fruit and vegetables closer to the till when you go so that you can see it and so individuals are nudged to purchasing that. So it's a similar model to, to that. And again, is that really changing the structure of this industrialized food system? which is based on food as a commodity, and you know, other things are just externalities. And so I'll end with this slide. Um, I'm sure you've heard of Karl Polanyi. Um, and it just epitomizes what I've been talking about in terms of the externalities of food. On the one hand, um, we can think about food as a right and, and uh, nutrition and uh, nourishment as something that's wider than the economy, something that's attached to society. And arguably, it's still the case in Cuba that, that we're more on the left-hand side here, whereas in a place like Trinidad and Tobago, the economy has 
uh, enveloped and uh, encompassed, if you will, uh, society and all different aspects of society like health, ecology, bodies, and all these things are considered externalities. And so I guess I'm a little bit early, I'm 35, but that's, so any questions?